1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, starting in verse 24. Now, like I said, I'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it to, into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So as here as we're progressing through this section of 1 Corinthians, I hope it's becoming more clear how the subject of Christian liberty, which is what Paul is really addressing starting in chapter 8, verse 1, how that subject fits into the larger whole of gospel ministry. It's a subject that Paul spends quite a bit of time addressing uh, in this letter, and it's a subject that the New Testament as a whole spends a good deal of time also addressing. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that the Bible here spends a good deal of time talking about Christian liberty, particularly as it pertains to ministry? Well, one answer is because Christians, like everyone else, right, we struggle uh, with our fallen nature. Ever since Adam fell in the garden, ever since Adam uh, brought sin and death into the world, we have all struggled with sin and death in this world. We struggle with the fallen nature. We struggle uh, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, to be sure, Christians are saved by grace. Great spot for an amen, right? Christians are saved by grace. And we are, we are uh, renewed in our spirits. We are uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this Christian life, but we still struggle. We still struggle. That's what Romans 7 is all about. The struggle of the new nature within us, struggling with the flesh. How I don't do what I want to do, and those things that I want to do, that's what I don't do. But as long as we continue to live in unredeemed flesh, we will continue to struggle with the sin nature, with the sin principle that resides in our unredeemed flesh. As the old popular bumper sticker says, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, right? <laughs> you know, a Christian is not better than anybody else. They are just one in whom, by the grace of God, their sins have been forgiven and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them by faith. We are not better than the next person. And sometimes we need to be reminded of these most basic truths of our faith. In this case, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Or, uh, as other translations may say, love builds up. We're naturally knowledge seekers, right? We are naturally those who seek to solve puzzles, to gain knowledge, to try to learn as much as we can. That is what drives a lot of human advancement. We are naturally knowledge seekers, and that's not a bad thing. That's just being created in the nature and image of God. We are knowledge seekers. Now, again, that fallen nature will corrupt that pursuit oftentimes, and we don't notice the truth of God existing in the universe that is staring at us in the face most of the time. But when you throw our fallen nature into the mix, 
It leads to arrogance and pride. That's why Paul says here, knowledge puffs up. If all you have is knowledge, it can, cause, it can sort of cause within you the, uh, this pride to swell up, this arrogance to swell up, that you, you're better than somebody else because you know more than the next person. Look no further to the internet and social media to see the arrogance of a bunch of fallen know-it-alls, right? Everyone on the internet seems to be an expert in everything, except the fact that they're not experts in anything at all, right? And Christians sadly fall into this trap as well. So Paul, under the authority of the Holy Spirit here, reminds the Corinthian church and us of this very basic gospel truth. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies, love builds up. Now last week, we looked at verses 19 through 23, and we saw here how the apostle states that he would stop at nothing for the sake of the gospel. He would do whatever it took, short of sin, right, short of sin, (laughs) but he would do whatever it takes to present the gospel, to share the gospel. We saw how he would make himself a servant of all if it meant that he would save some. He would become as a Jew to the Jews. He would become as a Gentile to the Gentiles. He would become as weak to the weak in order to save some. He says, I will be all things to all men by all means so I may save some. And he does this for the sake of the gospel. That is his motivation. That is his desire. That is his drive in his ministry to do and sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed in order to present the gospel. Now again, this is within the context of this idea of Christian liberty that is brought up in chapter 8, verse 1, concerning things offered to idols. And how he says in chapter 8, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And then chapter 9 just goes into a long, extended, sort of personal illustration, how he shows in his life how he applies that principle about giving up freedoms, giving up liberties in order to promote and present the gospel. He, he says, I give up my freedom in order to present the gospel free of charge so that no one will find fault in my gospel ministry. Because we know in Corinth there were all kinds of teachers there who were uh, charging for their teaching. That was what they did. The sophists, the philosophers, that's what they did. They would come into town They would offer their teaching for a price, gather a following, and that's how they made their living. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. In fact, he says, wherever I go, I don't charge for the gospel. I don't seek the support from the local congregation that is within my rights, but I don't do that in order to not present a stumbling block to to the young church there. So as we come into this passage here this morning, verses 24 to 27, Our passage here finishes Paul's extended uh, self-illustration of how he puts that principle into practice in his own ministry. And it's a passage that shows how dedicated Paul was to his ministry in the gospel. Just as athletes train and discipline their bodies to win earthly prizes, Paul here was just as diligent, just as disciplined, just as focused in his preaching of the gospel and his ministry of the gospel to those around him. So that's how Paul will finish uh, this chapter here this morning. So here we're going to see Paul uh, as he strives to obtain the imperishable crown in these verses. 
And we see in verse 24, running to win. So again, after Paul says, uh, I will do anything, whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel, Paul would make himself a servant to all in order to save some. Paul now turns to a sports metaphor, which is everything that a guy would understand, right? Paul being a guy, he likes to use his sports metaphors. So that's just in case, okay, I'm going to just, this is my own interpretation, but this is biblical warrant to use sports metaphors. In, in sermons and teaching. No, but he uses a sports metaphor here in verse 24. Look again at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, or you may win it. So instead of football, like we would use right here in Nebraska, football would be the most common sports metaphor, maybe girls' basketball or volleyball or uh, maybe men's baseball, but they're not doing too well this year. Paul here uses track and field. Now, again, if you recall from our introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians, we mentioned that Corinth, which was a major metropolitan area, it was on what they called an isthmus, an isthmus. It's a very hard word to say. I think it's like I-T-H-S or I-S-T. It's very hard to say but it's a little piece of land that's, that connects the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula. And it's a way they were able to ferry ships across from the Aegean Sea into the Mediterranean Sea. And Corinth sat there. So it was a big, major city for a lot of things, including games. They had the Isthmian Games there, which was second in popularity only to the actual Olympic Games. So they had these... Olymp athletic competitions in Corinth every two years. And Paul's point in using this racing metaphor is that in a race, you have many runners, right? You, you know, when you have a, the 100-meter dash, right? You get a, usually get like 9 or 10 people lined up for the 100-meter dash, but guess what? How many people can win that 100-meter dash? Only one person, unless there's a you know, photo finish, right? You, know, you, get a, you might have a statistically a tie, but only one person can win that race. Therefore, Paul says, if you're going to run in the race, run to win. There was no participation trophies in Paul's day, right? If you ran the race, just because you ran the race, you're not going to get a 10th place trophy saying, I participated. Run as if you're going to win the race. An athlete running in the race would spend weeks, months, in intense training in order to do and win the race. We see this again in our own sports world, right? Each August, right, 32 NFL teams begin training camp with one goal, and that is to win the Super Bowl. If you don't win the last game of the season, it doesn't matter. If you're not playing to win, don't play. If you're not running to win, don't run. You're like, well, that sounds awfully competitive, right? How does this apply to the Christian life? Well, Remember the overall, again, the overall context of what Paul's point here is in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, this idea of things offered to idols. He says we're at liberty to eat meat that has been offered to idols. That was the, that was the original uh, issue brought up. Things offered to idols. He says his argument is an idol is nothing, right? An idol is just, it's nothing. It's, it's a man-made uh, thing. We even saw this in our men's Bible study yesterday in the book of Acts, chapter 19, how Demetrius, the silversmith, 
roused the crowds in, in Ephesus into a riot because his, his business was being taken away. And he says, how dare those people say that things made with hands are not God's? And you're like, you know, you're just going to scratch. Yeah, of course something I made by my hand would not be a God because I, I made it. <laughs> Why would that be a God? But anyway, he says an idol is nothing. So then a meat offered to an idol is okay. But then he goes on to say, but if someone has a weakness in that area, a weakness of conscience, if they see me eating meat offered to an idol and it causes them to stumble, guess what? I'm going to sacrifice that liberty. I'm going to sacrifice that liberty. So knowledge says it's okay to eat, but love says do not eat for the sake of your brother. So Paul brings in this this sports metaphor, right? Athletes, what do they do? Well, they train. They train. They sacrifice. They sacrifice time. They sacrifice um, the ability to eat whatever they want, to sleep in. Now, they're at, they're at liberty to do that, right? A, a, a track runner is at liberty to eat a Sunday at the sweet treat. You know, a, a track runner is at liberty to sleep until noon if he wants to, but guess what? He ain't going to win the race if that's his training methodology to eat Sundays and sleep until noon. So he sacrifices those things in order to win the race. Now, this is not a foreign concept to us, right? We understand this, this, this principle. There are many goals in life in which we need to sacrifice something in order to achieve, to achieve them. We weigh the options. Is it worth it? Is the goal worth it for me to sacrifice whatever it needs to take to obtain that goal? Anything worthwhile in life requires some sacrifice. It's only things that are sinful that are advertised as easy and effortless, right? It's only the sinful stuff. It's like, hey, this is easy. It's like if it, if it requires no work, if it requires no sacrifice, odds are it's probably not good for you and it's probably something sinful. So Paul's here point in verse 24 is, if you're going to run in the race, then run to win the race. Run to win the prize. Do what you need to do to win the prize. And the Christian life is often seen as a race. It's a great metaphor for the Christian life, right? It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. But I'm going to look at a few passages here, if you will. You know, just bear with me. But flip over to Philippians. Oh, I like that. Flip to Philippians. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, it's a well-known passage, we all know this. Paul says here, of course, this is after he gives his resume, right, in verses 1 through 11. He talks about how um, he, he is willing to lose everything in his life, to count everything in his life as loss in order to gain Christ. Christ is the prize in his life. He recognized that. At one point, he, he, you know, he lays out his, his, his resume as a Pharisee and how he was this, that, and the other thing. And he says, I thought I had it all. And then I met Christ. And then he says, everything that I thought was gain, everything that I thought was in the plus column in my life turned into nothing. I realized that all my credits were debits. I realized I was chasing after the wrong prize. So I am willing to give it all up in order to gain Christ. 
Christ is the treasure of immeasurable worth. But after he says that, he goes on in verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained or I'm already perfected. Right? That, that goes back to verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. But he says, I haven't already obtained it, nor am I already perfected. But what do I do? I press on. That imagery is the image, that word is used to uh, describe what a race, a runner does at the end of the race, right? When he's approaching the tape in the race, what do they do? They stretch out to try to make sure they're the first ones to break that tape, right? So he presses on. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as uh, to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind me, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press, again, that same word, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a running metaphor. If you're running in a race, if you're running in a race and you're, and you're looking behind you at all the things that are behind you, how effective are you going to be at running the race? Right? You may miss the curve and run into a tree. Right? If you're focused on what's behind you, you're not focused on the goal which is ahead of you. That's why he says, I forget those things that lie behind. The good things, the bad things, the ugly things, all those things. I forget those things and I press on toward the goal. I run my race. And the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now turn please over to 2 Timothy Chapter 4. Now this is at the end of Paul's life. He is in a Roman prison for the second time. Well, yeah, at least the second time. Maybe more times. But he is about to be executed. He knows his time is short. And he is writing to his dear, beloved son in the faith, Timothy, And he says in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So he uses sacrificial language here from the Old Testament to say that my life is like a drink offering, and I'm already, even now as I write this, being poured out. And the time of my departure is at hand. And then he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So here he is at the end of his life in Philippians. He says, I press forward toward the goal. Here he is at the end of his life reflecting on his performance. And he says, I finished the race. I am at the finish line. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the fight, and now I am ready. I am ready to receive that crown, that prize, that Jesus himself will lay on my head. So the Christian life, again, is a race. One more passage, please. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So in Hebrews chapter 12, of course... I know this is, again, why you pay me the big bucks. Hebrews chapter 12 comes after Hebrews chapter 11. I know you didn't need me to tell you that. 
And I didn't need to go to three years of seminary education to learn that 12 comes after 11. I learned that in probably first grade. But Hebrews chapter 11, of course, is the great hall of faith, fame, hall of fame of uh, the Christian faith, where the author of Hebrews lists all the people who by faith did this, who by faith did that. And without faith, you cannot please God. Without faith, you cannot obtain the holiness that pleases God. So at the end of that great chapter where he says, and all these, all the people that we've mentioned, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God behaving, sorry, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Then in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, this is why you know, verse and chapter divisions aren't inspired, because a new chapter starts with a therefore which really should end <laughs> the last chapter. It's a conclusion. Therefore, we also... So now he's, after talking about all these heroes of the faith, he says, now us, let's turn to us. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we are being watched by all of the people who have gone before us. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. So that's verse 1. So it's like, okay, all of these people that we've mentioned in chapter 11 have run the race, and they are at the finish line, and they are cheering us on, so now we have this great cloud of witnesses. Let us, therefore, take all those things that weigh us down, right? I mean, if you're running a race, you're not going to be wearing ankle weights, wrist weights, and a backpack full of dumbbell plates, right? Because then you'd be like... (laughs) trying to run the race like that. So lay that aside. That's all the sin and all the, all the temptation that clings to you, that sort of ensnares you from running this race. Lay that all aside. Run the race with endurance that is set before us. And then looking to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author or originator and finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran the race before us, right? He ran the race. He blazed the trail. He found the path. He made the path ahead of us. And he is the one to whom we are to look as we run this race. So the Christian life, you could turn back to 1 Corinthians 9, the the Christian life is often depicted as a race, All of these passages teach the incontrovertible truth that we don't let go and let God. The Christian life is not one where you believe in Jesus by faith and then you sit down and don't do anything. It's not the Christian life. the, The Christian life is not like the Carrie Underwood song, Jesus Take the Wheel. Now I understand there's some context behind that song, but... Be that as it may. The Christian life is not one where you kick up your heels because you've got the fire insurance. The Christian life is a race. And you have to run the race. It is hard. It requires determination. It requires endurance. All of these passages we looked at, Paul talks about, you know, run with endurance the race set before you. Strain. Press on. Run this race to win the prize. Now, let's look at verse 25 where he continues 
the sports metaphor, where he is temperate in all things, verse 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So after saying, if you're going to run, run to win, Paul says that if you're going to win the prize, it'll take being temperate. It'll take being self-controlled in all things. That word temperate, it's a long Greek word. I'm not even going to try to butcher it. But it it means exercising self-control. Self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Well, one of the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. I think I got them out of order, but I think I got all nine of them there. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And we've mentioned it briefly before earlier, but again, consider the life of an athlete. How much time spent in training? How meticulous are their diets, right? I mean, it's, everything is, is regimented in the life of an athlete in order for them to be able to operate at peak performance. Self-control, temperance. I would imagine there are times, again, that they would love to just break training. <laughs> can I just sleep in one morning, coach? Can I, can I just... Can I just have, you know, can I just go and get a, you know, a blizzard over a Dairy Queen or something? No, no, no. You cannot break training. Reminds me of a story of my oldest son, Matt, who was, uh, this was, he was in eighth grade. He was 13 years old, and he entered travel football at our local uh, boys club. They offered a travel team. And he had a, he was one of these kids at, at his age. He was about 125 pounds at the age of 13. And they had two travel teams. They had a heavyweight travel team and a lightweight travel team. And he worked out, and he was right on the cusp. So he had a choice. And he said, well, I would rather be the big guy on the little guy team than the little guy on the big guy team. And he's like, okay, that makes sense. So, but the problem is they had weight they had weigh-ins, weekly weigh-ins, right? And you're a 13-year-old boy. How, how hard is it to gain weight as a 13-year-old boy? You just breathe and, and absorb sunlight. You probably just gain weight. So he had to eat. He had to watch what he ate. He would eat salads. He would eat uh, low-fat, like, fish and chicken. And it was killing him. It was killing them because, you know, they would go to the weigh-ins, and then once they got weighed in, then they would run to Subway and get like a foot long and scarf that down before the game. But anyway, it, it required training, discipline. And then when he was all done with that, I think the kid didn't eat a salad for like two straight years. It's like, I'm done eating green leafy vegetables. I need to eat some real food. Now, again, going back to the story here in, in 1 Corinthians 9, it's not as if Eating meat, any of these things are sinful. Paul is not talking about sacrificing inherently sinful things. He is talking about exercising self-control and things that we are free to engage in for the sake of the gospel. If the goal is to win the prize, if that is your goal, then you need to do what you have to do to win the prize. That's the whole point of the metaphor. So if the goal or the prize is to win the more to the faith, then what are you willing to sacrifice to win that prize? 
That's what Paul is asking. My goal is to do all things by all means for all people that I might win some. What are you willing to do for that goal, for that prize? He was willing to relinquish his liberty in Christ. He was willing to make himself a servant of all men in order to win some. And it's really the difference between the mindset that says, I have salvation, and one says, I want to see others saved. Right? The one that says, I climbed up the ladder, now I'm, you know, I'll kick the ladder up so no one else can climb up. Or one who says, let me help you up the ladder. <laughs> That's Paul's mentality. It's like, I want to see people saved. In fact, that was what Paul said in Philippians, going back to when he talks about when he was in prison. Right? When he was in prison, he's like, look, I want to go and be with Jesus. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to me. I may die. I don't know. But if I die, I know I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord, and that is much better for me. But it's also useful for me to be with you all because I can help you and instruct you and win more to Christ. And he says, I'm torn between the two. That's amazing. <laughs> That's an amazing statement. I mean, I think most of us would say, let me go be with Jesus. Let me leave this world and go be with Jesus. Paul was like, I'm willing to delay that in order that I may still win some more people so that they can obtain that, that goal, that prize as well. It's the difference between one who is interested in their own liberty and one who sees their personal liberty as a thing to be laid aside for the sake of the kingdom. Now I say this knowing we all fall, fall short. We all fall short of this. This is not an attempt to guilt people into doing more, trying harder. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to explain the passage here before us. This is Paul's mentality in the faith. It was Paul's mentality in the faith. Salvation is based, is not, I should say, is not based on how many notches you have in your spiritual belt. Right? It's based on faith in Christ alone. So you're not going to get to heaven just because you won more people to Christ than the next person. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say salvation by how many people you bring into heaven. It says salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, to God's glory alone. But again, if love edifies, then love dictates that we set aside our liberty as Paul did for his something to lay aside for the sake of the gospel. Now back to the athletic metaphor that Paul uses here in verse 25. He says that he, uh, this temperance in all things is for a perishable crown. The people who run in the race do it to obtain a perishable crown. Now back in those races, the winner of the race would get a little leafy wreath thing. I don't know what they call those things. I, a laurel? Okay. I like leafy wreath thing. <laughs> They win the laurel, okay? They win this crown. It's made out of leaves. Now, what happens if you pluck a leaf from its tree for a while? It's going to wither and die, right? They do all of these things, the sacrificing, the training, the diet, the, the, you know, all of these things, so they can win something that's going to fade in a week, Right? It's like when you buy your wife flowers on Valentine's Day. This is how I show my love to you. And you're like, great, wonderful. You gave me something that's going to die in two weeks. Does that mean your love is going to die for me in two weeks? 
No, 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 no. They run to receive this perishable crown. That word perishable just means something corruptible, something subject to decay. It's the word that Paul uses later on in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about our bodies. Our bodies are corruptible. They are made of flesh. Flesh decays. Right? You are made from dust. To dust you shall go again when you are dead. Our corruptible bodies must put on incorruption. It's something which refers to this age. This age is corruptible. The things of this world, the things of this age are corruptible. They are passing away. In other words, all this effort, all this sacrifice for something that has a shelf life of about a week or two. Our labor, Paul's labor, is for an imperishable crown. Literally just negating perishable. So he labors for an imperishable crown. If, if these athletes do all this work for this thing that perishes, why, not, why wouldn't we do all this work for something that is imperishable? That's what Paul's argument here is. Again, in 2 Timothy 4.8, he speaks of a crown of righteousness that he will receive on that day. James 1.12 speaks of a crown of life which those who endure temptation will receive. Revelation 2, verse 10 also speaks of a crown of life that Jesus will give to the one who overcomes. All those letters in Revelation end with the the phrase that says, to the one who overcomes. And again, I think you can apply that racing metaphor, right? To the one who has endured. To the one who has run the race. Now again, it can sound odd, maybe even unchristian, if you will, to speak of running and training to obtain a crown which, by all accounts, is a gift of free grace. You may want to ask, is Paul saying now that we work and train and run to receive a crown that is to be given by grace? Well, we'll table that for a moment. I'll get back to that at the end. But moving on now, a little little more quickly here. Verses 26 and 27, disciplining my body. So he begins there with therefore in verse 26, indicating, of course, that he is concluding his argument. Uh, and the, the point, of course, that his resolution is to win, run and win the race. Look at verse 26. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, fight not as one who beats the air. So Paul doesn't run as one with uncertainty. He doesn't run as one who doesn't know where he's going. Again, how funny would it be, you know, you've got the 100-meter dash. Usually they're in, a, in an oval, right? <laughs> if a guy, you know, you hear the gun go off and a guy just starts running off and doesn't know where he's going. You know, it's like, you know, they're running with uncertainty. They're running without a road map. Paul's not running that way. Paul doesn't fight as one who is literally beating the air, right? He's not shadow boxing. You know, you don't fight just, you know, I'm not going to win the prize by punching the heck out of the air. Okay? Paul has a plan. Paul has a goal. Paul's plan is not to come into second place. In other words, Paul is being intentional. When I run this race, I run the win. When I, when I fight, I fight to win. Again, consider what we saw last time. Paul has a plan. When he meets a Jew, he says, I will become as a Jew. That's my plan. That's my goal. That's the path I'm running on. When I uh, 
When I meet a Gentile, I'm going to behave as a Gentile in order to win the Gentile. Do we have a plan? That's the point. Do we have a plan when we do these things? Do, are we running with certainty? Are we, are we not beating the air? Do we, have, do we have answers, if you will? Let's put it this way, bring it more concretely. Do we have answers to some of the common questions or objections to the faith? If someone came up to you and asked you a question, do you have a ready answer on, on, on hand? Do you have scripture verses memorized that you can call to mind that speak to certain situations that you may come across? Again, I'm not trying to guilt trip people here. It just, it's, it's, it's an attempt to make us more proactive than reactive. I mean, it's okay if someone comes up and asks you a question, you're like, I, I don't know the answer to that. Let me look at that and come back to you. That's perfectly fine. But how much better is it if you actually have an answer to that question? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, how much better is it if you can speak a verse into their life? How much better is it if you can point to Scripture and, and show where things are, are, are at and how they relate and how they come into context? Just, it's, a, it's just the idea of being proactive. Paul was proactive. Again, this is not, he doesn't, he doesn't do this in order to be approved by God so he will win salvation. It's already his. He's doing this to be approved by God because he wants to be obedient to God. That's how he shows his gratitude to God. That's how we show our gratitude to God. Heidelberg Catechism, right? Guilt, grace, gratitude. How do you show your gratitude? Obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Give me roses? No. Send me Valentine's Day cards? No. If you love me, keep my commandments. So to ensure that he doesn't run aimlessly or punch the air, Paul here disciplines his body. Verse 27, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And that that word again, discipline, uh, literally means to beat something black and blue. (laughs) Now, again, Paul is Paul's speaking metaphorically. He is not speaking about self-flagellation like the, like the old Catholic monks did back in Martin Luther's day. I'm, so, I'm such a sinner, I'm going to beat myself. And, you know, that's not pious. That's not pleasing to God. It's, he's talking about discipline. That's why modern English translations use the word discipline. It's, it has more meaning here. In order to make himself a servant to all, he brings his body into subjection to his goal. Again, just like an athlete. I want to win the race. I have to bring my body into subjection for my goal, which is to win the race. And he disciplines his body in order to achieve his goals and also to avoid being disqualified. In other words, to be able to stand the test, to be approved. Paul disciplines his body so that after preaching to others, he himself will not be disqualified. He disciplines his body because it is through the body, right? It is through the flesh that sin attacks us. Sin is the beachhead, or the body is the beachhead for sin, using a World War II metaphor, right? Where on D-Day, the Allies... Obtained and achieved a beachhead on Normandy. And from there, they were able to go out and attack the Axis powers from there because they were able to establish that, that operating base there, that beachhead. Well, Paul says 
The body is the beachhead for sin. Sin attacks us through the body. So I have to bring my body under subjection to myself. I have to discipline it. Nothing harms the witness of the church more than a minister of the gospel should be disqualified. I mean, it's not to say that it doesn't harm the church when a church member is disqualified, but if you can strike the head, right, the sheep will scatter. That's, that's the, the strategy. Now, I don't need to mention names or churches, but I'm sure we can all think of examples, great and small, of ministers who have not practiced what they preached, who have preached the gospel and then have found themselves disqualified. We should never minimize the pull and lure of the flesh. The flesh and the temptations of the flesh are real. They are real. They are, they are felt. And ministers are under, in my opinion, heavier spiritual attacks than regular church members. Again, for that very reason. If you can strike the head of the church, then you know, the body, the sheep, scatter. Satan can get a church member to be disqualified, that's bad, but if he can disqualify a pastor or an elder, that's worse. And then it's magnified, the larger the church, the greater the scandal. The whole history of the church, even in modern days, in my own lifetime, I can go back and just point at a number of times that these big churches with well-known Christian leaders have fallen into scandal. And then how the world then uses that as a hammer to beat the church. Why become a Christian? See, Christianity is all fake. It's all this. You've got to bring your body into subjection. So, as a public service announcement, <laughs> pray for your pastors. <laughs> pray for your pastors. I'm not doing this just for my own, self, for own sake. Pray for your pastors. Paul's point here is that he disciplines his own body so he can run the race in order to obtain the imperishable crown. Now, I'm, I'm pretty much done here, but I do want to go back because I mentioned earlier this, this it sounds like you know, he's talking about how you, the running of the race is what wins the crown. Okay. Now, the Bible oftentimes has what we call warning passages, Right, you know, Hebrews six is a very popular warning passage that has caused a lot of consternation uh, in how to interpret it. But these warning passages are there, and they serve a purpose. And it is through the means of these warning passages that the faithful endure, that the faithful persevere in their faith. Right, you know, the think of the example of the unforgivable sin. Right, Jesus talks about. The unforgivable sin. And everyone wants to know, what's the unforgivable sin? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? And one of the kind of interesting comebacks to that is, well, if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, then you probably haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Okay? Now, that's the thing, right? That's the thing with these warning passages. They stir our faith, right? They cause us to sort of buckle down and, and, and work harder in order to not be disqualified. The crown is not something you can earn. I'm just going to be perfectly flat out honest here. The crown of righteousness, the crown of life is not something you can earn by running the race. 
The crown of life is graciously given to those who persevere and endure in running the race. So Paul is not saying you work for your salvation. He is saying the one who endures, that is the one who has been shown to be truly saved. That is the one in whom the Spirit has brought regeneration and life to. That is the one in whom the Holy Spirit is sanctifying. The one who runs the race, the one who endures to the end, is the one you know has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because the promise of God is that He who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Well, that's all I have, and we're running out of time. Next time, Lord willing, next week, we will look and enter into chapter 10. Paul is going to continue this argument that he's in here. with it's, He's still on the subject of things offered to idols, but he brings it to a close in chapter 10. And uh, we'll look at probably the first 13 verses next week. Again, Lord willing.